Hi, this is Lauren from San Antonio, Texas, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know that there is a little bit more to making a podcast than talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need a little bit more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that's simple and easy to work with. That's why I use Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and a fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. If you host a show or you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com stream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there with you every step of the way to help you migrate over. You won't lose any of your subscribers in the process either. And if you're new to this, they can get your show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month. And there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar. This week, I'd like to thank Brandon C., Angela, Rebecca W., DSC, Michael S., and Rochelle for joining Patreon. Thank you again for all of your support. And if you are not interested in a monthly donation, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps. So again, thank you. Every year around Halloween, I try to look for a case that happened on or around that day. Two years ago on episode 17, we brought you an episode entitled The Tale of the Napa Valley Nightmare, where we covered the Halloween night murders of Leslie Mazzara and Adrian Insognia. Last year in a bonus episode entitled The Tale of the Castle Doctrine, we discussed the shooting death of Brandon Ketstever, a 17-year-old who was out with friends stealing Halloween decorations when he was shot by one of the homeowners whose house the teens had targeted. The story we're going to delve into today is one that I thought about covering two years ago, and then I thought about covering it one year ago. The Halloween stories that are from out here in California are limited, and this is one I had heard about quite some time ago, and I don't know why, but for some reason I kept holding off on it. And I think I wanted something to hang on to and to look forward to as another year is winding down because the story has really stuck with me over the years. It's a story of tragic loss, but it is also one of forgiveness. And while we must stop short of calling it a happy ending because our cases hardly ever have that, this one does have a measure of satisfaction. Sometimes it takes many years to get there. And this story today, it did grow cold for a while. 
but it didn't stay cold forever. In this 115th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the night before Halloween. And really quick, I'm going to have to apologize if my voice sounds a little off or if it's cracking or if it sounds raspy. It's because of the fires that have been going on and the air is just really terrible and we're breathing in a lot of ashes and it's sort of unavoidable. So it's affecting the way I sound. So I'm not sick and I'm not being affected by the fires in any other way. So this is really a minor problem. All right, let's get started in our story here. Halloween was one of the Hoynes family's favorite holidays. It was a household full of daughters, four of them. From oldest to youngest, Kim, Robin, Trisha, and Wendy. Every year, the girls would get dressed up in their costumes, head out into the neighborhood located in one of Southern California's quiet middle-class suburbs of Los Angeles, in the area known as the South Bay. They do their trick-or-treating, and when they were certain they hit every house, or at least the ones that looked inviting, that didn't shut off all their lights and everyone hiding in the back bedroom, the girls would head home, sort through their candy, do all of their trading, and call it a successful night. Even as the girls were getting older, it was still one of their favorite holidays, even if they were starting to age out of trick-or-treating. The evening before Halloween of 1984 was no exception. By this time, the girls were getting into their late teens and early 20s, and they did start to have their own individual responsibilities outside the family, and they were pretty much all going to be doing their own thing on this upcoming Halloween. Now, the night before, on Halloween Eve, it was a Tuesday, the Hoynes' second oldest daughter, Robin, who was 21 at the time, she had worked the night shift that night at her job at Kentucky Fried Chicken, or KFC, in the city of Torrance, where she held the position of manager. Robin was the redhead of the family. She was pretty and sweet and popular and outgoing, and she had let her parents know that after work she planned to spend the night at a friend's house when she got off, and that she would be home the next morning, Halloween day. On that day, Wendy, the youngest of the four, she got dressed in her costume and went to school. The next oldest, Trish, she put on her costume, and it happened to be one that belonged to her older sister Robin, and she headed to work for the day. Kim, the eldest, she also left early Halloween morning, she worked at a shop in a local mall. As for Robin, she was scheduled to be home at any minute. She was typically pretty dependable and was always pretty good about checking in with her parents, letting them know where she was at, who she was with, and what time they could expect her home. And on the evening of the 30th, she had actually not been scheduled to work that night. Her coworker Cheryl, a few days earlier, had asked if they could swap shifts because Cheryl had just recently started seeing a new guy, and they had plans to go to a concert on the evening of the 30th. Cheryl was the assistant manager, so they were able to change their shifts around if they wanted to. 
So Cheryl would take Robin's opening shift the following day, Halloween day. And Robin took the late shift the evening before, which entailed all of the closing duties at the end of the day. And a component of that was to close out the registers, to tally up the sales for the day, to count the cash, and to take it over to the evening depository at the bank, which was located in the same parking lot, walking distance from the KFC. Of course, everyone who was familiar with the closing duties made sure to be very careful, to be aware of their surroundings, and to make sure that once the store was closed and they went back to the office to count up the money, that the front door was securely locked. Now, I've worked in retail sales, as many of us have, at several different places, both big and small businesses. The big businesses generally used armored trucks to come and pick up the money from the day sales the following morning. Pickups never happened at night. And in the small businesses that I've worked at, we would close the store, count out the registers, we'd get the cash and the checks all added up and put into the deposit bag, but we'd put it in a safe and the morning manager would take it over to the bank the following day at various times of the day. But walking it over to the bank to drop it in the night depository wasn't something that we did. There might still be businesses that do things that way, I don't know, but there are probably a lot more safer ways these days than to send your employees over to the bank after 10 o'clock at night anymore. Now I did read that the deposit policy had changed a little less than two weeks prior to the night that our story takes place, and I'll talk about that. But to me, it did not seem like a well-thought-out decision in terms of employee safety. Whatever the case, Robin was the manager, and she had known to be responsible to take precautions, and she certainly wasn't the type of person to accidentally leave the front door unlocked after closing hours, and she certainly would not have left the door open for anyone unless she knew and trusted the person. So Cheryl arrived the next morning for her opening shift. And it's probably not that early. And full disclosure, when I was like 17 or 18, I worked for KFC for like a minute. Seriously, it was less than two weeks because I couldn't take it. But I don't think I ever worked in the morning. I can't remember. And it was such a short time. As a matter of fact, I'd almost rather just forget about it. But the store didn't open until 11 a.m., because it's a lunch and dinner place, obviously. So the morning people would arrive about an hour before opening to get the place ready for the day. So Cheryl arrived, and when she pulled up into the parking lot, she noticed that Robin's car was still there. Her first thought was that maybe Robin forgot that they had swapped shifts and accidentally showed up to open, as she had originally been scheduled. Otherwise, she couldn't figure out why Robin's car was there. So she unlocked the front door and went inside. The place was quiet and empty. And as she slowly made her way across the dining room, nothing really looked out of place at first glance. But when she made her way past the front counter and towards the kitchen, as she rounded the corner, she began to see Robin's figure lying on the ground. And the first thought that popped into her mind was that Robin had slept there that night. Why would she do that? It wasn't until Cheryl got a little bit closer that the reality of what was 
going on began to sink in. Robin wasn't asleep. She was dead. Cheryl ran back out the front door and found someone who went and called 911. One of the first detectives on the scene was Jeff Lancaster. When he arrived, he noted that Robin was lying on the ground face down. Underneath her was a pool of blood that seemed to have formed on one side of her body. She had suffered some sort of slashing or cutting marks down the left side of her face, and her throat was slit. Robin also suffered two stab wounds to her lower back, just to the right of her spine. And from what Detective Lancaster was able to deduce from what he was seeing, the whole thing looked a little pedestrian. Sort of an amateur attempt at committing a murder by someone who wasn't very savvy, not very experienced at what he was doing. And it was pretty clear from the rest of the evidence at the scene that the motive was robbery. At least an attempted robbery. There was a safe, and if I'm remembering correctly, the safe itself was built into the ground and it had a cover. So the cover had to be removed in order to access the combination tumbler. And it seemed as though the combination lock had recently been replaced because it appeared to be new, but upon closer inspection, it looked like there was some paint chips missing from the lock, as if someone had been striking at it with an object in order to try to break it. There were also a few blood droplets on the lock, but when investigators dusted for prints, there were none. Their murder weapon was nowhere to be found. But the detectives did notice something that seemed a little out of place laying next to Robin's body. It was a small, curved piece of rubber foam. Investigators looked around but could not for the life of them figure out where this foam piece had come from. It looked like it had been a piece of padding from like the handle of something like a backpack or an attache case. Like the handle had come apart and this piece of foam fell out of it. Whatever the case, it wasn't really something that was providing any leads into anything, but they collected it nonetheless and put it together with the rest of the evidence from the scene. Investigators were able to locate Robin's wallet, and that's how they were able to ascertain her identity and the location of her residence. The police dispatched an officer to Robin's home, but when he arrived, he knocked and nobody was there. He left his card with a note scrawled on the back to please give the Torrance Police Department a call. They needed to speak to someone about Robin. The first person to arrive home to find the note from the police on the door was the eldest of the Hoynes girls, Kim. She immediately followed the instructions on the note and called the number on the card and quickly got to the point. Is Robin okay? The officer on the other end of the line had to give her the devastating news. No, no she wasn't. So now Kim was left with the heart-wrenching task of breaking the news to the rest of the family that their quartet of sisters were no more. They were only three now. Kim spoke to their mom first, telling her the news that the officer had told her that Robin was dead. Mom reacted at first with denial. You're lying to me, she said to Kim. She repeated herself, you're lying to me. 
Mom was in a complete state of disbelief and shock. Of course, Kim wasn't lying. Nobody would or could do such a thing to their own mother. Before long, the truth of what Kim was telling her began to sink in. This is actually happening. Her second eldest is gone. And now Mom and Kim have to tell Dad. They called him up at work and he said, Okay, I'm coming home. And they kept going, one by one, getting a hold of Trisha, which they weren't able to right away. And then Wendy, their youngest at school, in her Halloween costume, sitting in class, getting word that her big sister Robin was stabbed. She wasn't told that Robin was dead, just that she was stabbed. So her first question was, did she die? Hoping that the answer would be no. She stabbed, but she desperately wanted to hear that she was alive and fighting. But Wendy was told, no, she's not alive. Trish, their second to youngest, she did not receive the news until she got home from work and still wearing the costume that she had borrowed from Robin. She came through the door and was met with the devastating news about her sister. She just glanced down at her costume and had a complete meltdown. And my dreamers, you know, the Halloween evening had to go on. The neighborhood kids started coming, donning their costumes, knocking at the door of the Hoynes's, trick-or-treating. And the worst imaginable day of their lives, here trying to pass out candy, at the same time trying to figure out how they're going to live their lives minus one of their beautiful girls. It goes without saying, Halloween would never, ever be the same. And back at the KFC, investigators spent their Halloween there, going in and out of the restaurant looking for anything that could lead them in a direction to go. There was no indication that someone forced their way into the restaurant. The front door wasn't damaged, it hadn't been kicked in, and the lock hadn't been broken. So it led investigators to believe that whomever it was that came inside and attacked Robin must have been let in. She let someone in. But this is Robin, working alone at night with a day's deposit, getting ready to take it over to the bank. Those who knew Robin have said she would not have let anybody inside unless she knew and trusted that person. So it made sense that it had to be someone she knew. And I think the same could be said for every single one of us put in the same position. This had to have been someone Robin was familiar with. So that would narrow down the people investigators needed to start looking at and talking to about this. They could also tell that Robin was in the middle of finalizing the paperwork for the evening. So if she was in the middle of that and something drew her attention to the storefront, say someone knocking at the door, well then, she got up, left the paperwork on the desk to see who it was, and it was someone she was at ease with having inside the store while she finished up the paperwork and the deposit because she wasn't done when she let this person in. So we have to assume she allowed them to come inside and ostensibly would be returning to finish up for the night. But who? It could have been a friend of hers or possibly even a co-worker. Could it have been a customer? I think the customer theory would be the least likeliest of the three options here. 
If the person knocking on the door was a friend or co-worker, I'm sure that they would expect Robin to let them in and she would do so willingly. But would she let a regular customer inside? Even if she knew the person and was familiar, she doesn't know them beyond that. If a customer had shown up at my place of work after hours, I would think the only reason would be one of maybe a handful of reasons. They forgot something. They want to ask me for my number. They want to rob me. They want to rape me or they want to kill me. Those are the options. And so I am not opening a door for anyone. They're going to have to come back in the morning if they forgot something. Unless I could fit it through the mail slot, they've got to go. So I'm not thinking Robin is going to let a customer in. It's either a friend or a coworker, a fellow KFC colleague. A few episodes back when we discussed the grim sleeper, Lonnie Franklin Jr. with Kate over at the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast, both of us mentioned what the climate was like here in Southern California at that time during the 80s. The violent crime rate was high and it was mostly related to street crime, street violence, gangs, drugs, and we suggested that the murders that Franklin was committing had likely been categorized along with those crimes rather than the LAPD attributing the killings or even wanting to acknowledge that there might have been an active serial killer committing murders unrelated to the other violent street crime-related murders that were going on at the time. Well, Robin was killed in 1984, right in the middle of one of the deadliest decades on record in Southern California. At the time, there was an average of almost four murders a day. But Robin's murder stood out from the rest. Torrance was not a high crime area, and Robin Hoynes was not considered to be a person at risk of falling victim to random street crime. And as far as anybody knew, there was no one who wanted to do harm to Robin. She had not an enemy anyone was aware of. So for someone to have wanted to have done this to Robin and for it to have likely been somebody that she knew was unthinkable. And it was especially hard, of course, on Robin's sisters who did not know any different than it ever being the four of them. The youngest only 16 when Robin was so violently taken from them. Sorting through the grief and the confusion, the new reality of the person who had been your best friend, the person who fell asleep next to you every single night was just suddenly not there anymore. It was impossible to come to grips with, especially when trying to figure out who did this to her. Who would want to hurt Robin like this and why? And police were kind of stumped too. They labored over this case. They toiled over the clues, the evidence, they went through the gamut of suspicions, and at every turn, they had nothing. Except for that weird piece of foam they found near Robin's body. They had no idea what it was or where it came from, or if it was even worth anything in terms of being a clue in this case. But you know, there's just that nagging feeling that it must mean something. They just had no idea what. Whatever the case was, aside from that perplexing piece of foam, as they came to understand what the crime scene itself was telling them, 
They began to piece together what they thought could have happened to Robin the evening before Halloween in that KFC. And they became centered on a very disturbing theory. That this crime was not committed by a random person unknown to Robin. This was no opportunistic stranger who happened across Robin alone in a closed KFC, who was a vulnerable, easy target for a robbery. And as I mentioned earlier, there was no indication that anyone forced their way in or broke in. Additionally, there was no sign that Robin had struggled at all with anyone. Nothing was knocked over. Robin had no defensive wounds that indicated that she fought with the person who had been there. Her autopsy revealed that she was stabbed in the back first, twice, both of which were fatal wounds and then the slashings to her neck and face came afterwards. She didn't have defensive wounds on her hands, not a single mark, no injuries, nothing, further bolstering the medical examiner's determination that she had been stabbed in the back first. She was taken by surprise. She never had the opportunity to raise her hands to defend herself. She never saw it coming. Investigators believe then, whoever did this came to the door She saw who it was. She either had the deposit money prepared in the deposit bag on the counter or on the desk, but before she answered the door, she placed the money into the safe and locked it, and then she let them in. And not only that, she was comfortable enough with this person, so much so that she turned her back on him, giving him enough time to begin his attack with virtually no resistance from her. When investigators were able to talk to the district manager of the KFC, they were able to determine that at the time that she was attacked, she would have been doing the evening paperwork. If someone knocked on the door and she saw who it was, she took the time to place the money in the safe because perhaps the person who was knocking was someone she didn't completely trust. And the reason they were able to come up with this early on was because when Cheryl had arrived, she had discovered Robin and summoned for help and she remained there at the scene to speak to investigators. And once they had gathered the evidence that they needed from the safe, they asked Cheryl to open it. And when she did, they found the money from the night before still in there. And it was strange that it was in there because Robin would have taken it with her when she finished for the night and dropped it off at the night depository. She would have had no reason to have placed it back into the safe unless the person she let in was not only someone she was acquainted with, but also someone that she didn't trust, so much so that she locked the money away before letting him in. It was about $600 with the evening sales receipts all piled up in the safe, locked, so the killer was unable to get it. The scratch marks that were found on the safe, investigators believed were the futile attempt by the killer to force the safe open. So it had investigators thinking, Did this person come into the KFC with the intentions of being able to gain access to the safe after killing Robin and for some reason was unable to get the thing open? The only real reason why Robin would have been killed was because she would have been able to identify him, right? But here's the thing. The person must have thought that he would have been able to get into the safe without Robin's help. Otherwise, killing her would have made no sense. He would have needed her to get the safe open for him, correct? But he didn't do that. He didn't come in there brandishing a weapon, 
threatening her with it while forcing her to put the combination in for the safe to open it for him. There was no fight and there was no struggle and he had completely taken Robin by surprise, stabbing her in the back while she wasn't looking, killed her, and then he went for the safe. What does that lead us to believe? That perhaps he, at one time, had been privy to the combination? Then that would lend to the co-worker scenario. Someone who Robin would have known. Someone she would have let in. Someone who knew she'd be alone. Someone who'd known that she'd have a deposit to make. And someone really, really cold-blooded enough to kill her for it. Well, when investigators raised the question with Cheryl, something and someone came to mind right away. A thing that she had remembered from the day earlier, on the 30th. She had received a call sometime prior to her shift that day from William. He asked if she was going to be working that night. And at the time, prior to having made the switch with Robin, she said that she was. And he told her that he was going to stop in that evening and turn in his uniform and retrieve his briefcase and whatever other personal belongings that he had left at the store. And after Cheryl spoke to Robin about switching with her, she also mentioned that she was expecting William to come by that night to drop off his uniform and pick up his things. And Robin was like, okay, no problem. So who is this William person? Well, William was William Marshall, and he was once employed with KFC and did work with Robin at her store's location for a couple of months. At the time, he was 23 years old, He seemed to have a measure of ambition. He seemed to work hard. He got along pretty well with others. He was friendly and outgoing and known to be very devoutly religious. The following information I obtained from the court documents related to this case, which provides some pretty good background information about the KFC and its employees for us here. So on October 2nd, 1984, Marshall began working as an assistant manager at the KFC alongside Robin. Now Marshall did train at another KFC location in the city of Fountain Valley, which is a pretty good distance from Torrance. Torrance is located close to the most southwestern point of the greater Los Angeles area. And Fountain Valley, well, it's a neighboring city where I'm at here in Huntington Beach. It's along the coast as well. And while the 30-mile or 40-kilometer drive doesn't sound all that bad, considering you have to take the notoriously congested 405 freeway for the bulk of the commute, it could take you more than an hour to get from Torrance to Fountain Valley, depending on the time of day. Anyways, so Marshall trained there at the Fountain Valley location, and there are a couple of incidents that took place at that location, which I will get into in a little bit. Now, I was not under the impression that he was working at the same level as Robin. And in the court documents, Robin is described as the store manager, where some of the initial articles I had been reading on this case said that she was the assistant manager, but he's also the assistant manager. But I did have the impression that she had some seniority at the store. So her being the store manager makes more sense. Anyway, the district manager of the KFC in that area was Gregory Robdow. 
And in the court documents, it says that the only people who had the keys to the safe and its accompanying combination was Rabdow, Robin, and Marshall. And all three of them had keys to the store itself. As soon as Marshall began working at the store with Robin, Rabdal began experiencing problems with the new assistant manager. Now remember, he just started on October 2nd, 1984. This was only 28 days before Robin's murder. Exactly four weeks. That's our time frame here. Within two weeks of having started at the store, Rabdal reported that Marshall began asking for advances on his salary and he had shown up for work extremely late on two occasions. So we're talking two weeks in and Marshall is already not living up to the standards of what Rabdal had expected from an assistant manager. So the second time Marshall showed up late for work, Rabdal decided to suspend him for four days. Despite being on suspension, Marshall maintained possession of the keys to the store and the safe, and the combination to the safe had not been changed. After Marshall's suspension was served, he returned to work and resumed in his position as assistant manager. On October 15th and October 18th, 13 days and 16 days into Marshall's employment with the KFC, money was discovered to be missing from the store's safe. The first theft actually occurred while Marshall's suspension was still in effect. There had been no signs that anyone had forced their way into the store or into the safe, which led Rob Dow to believe that it had been someone with access to keys. Robin had been the one who became aware of the theft and reported it, so suspicion quickly fell on Marshall. Though he was the likely culprit, nobody had any real proof of this. This was 1984, so there was very little in the way of security measures. Even if there was an alarm, which there likely was not, Marshall would have been able to disarm it as he gained entry into the store. There are definitely no cameras, and even today, a town like Torrance is quiet at night. So back then, activity around the store could have easily gone unnoticed. When it came to the second theft on the 18th, Marshall was the closing manager that night. He was the last person working. He was the one to close up and lock the store for the night, and he would be the first person to arrive at work the following day and unlock and open the store, and he was the one who reported the missing money, which totaled $1,120. Again, there was no sign that anyone forced their way into the store or into the safe. Now, apparently, this is when the store changed its policy about deposits, as I had mentioned towards the beginning. I guess prior to these thefts, the day's money and receipts were left in the safe and taken into the bank the following day. But because of these two large thefts, the new policy was for the manager or assistant manager to be required to put the money into a bank bag and make the night's deposit or take the money home to deposit it the next day. And like I said, this policy doesn't really sit well with me in terms of employee safety and I think it was a poor decision on the part of upper management to put that kind of responsibility on its store employees. But anyway, prior to these two thefts, this KFC store had never had any history or trouble with theft. Obviously, putting two and two together, seeing as the newest member of the staff was William Marshall, he had already been asking for salary advances He had been late for work twice in as many weeks, 
and was suspended for four days. Gregory Robdahl did not see this as being a coincidence that they were now experiencing issues with employee theft. So on the 20th of October, two days after the second theft, Robdahl suspended Marshall for a second time, as he strongly believed Terry's responsible for the missing deposits, though again, he had no solid proof, but the circumstances strongly pointed to him as being responsible. Two days later on the 22nd, Rabdell called in a locksmith to have the combination of the safes changed unbeknownst to Marshall. Then four days after that, Rabdell officially terminated Marshall's employment with KFC. He gave him notice in writing outlining his immediate termination and cited his tardiness and the missing money, among other reasons, for letting him go. Rabdell also retrieved the keys to the store and the safe from Marshall, and as he had already changed the combination to the lock, he went ahead and changed the locks on the store itself, just in case Marshall had surreptitiously made a duplicate set. In an effort to hang on to his job, Marshall wrote his own letter in response to Gregory Rabdow's, offering to make some changes in his work ethic, and he also offered to repay the money that had been previously stolen. Of course, Rabdell saw this offer as an implicit admission of his guilt of the theft. And of course, he's not going to be giving William Marshall any second chances. I don't even know if he responded to the letter, but I don't think any criminal charges were ever brought against Marshall for the theft. There was likely not enough to prove that it was him, even with the letter saying that he'd pay back the money. So looking just to move on, Rabdell promoted Cheryl Fuller, remember the Cheryl who switched shifts with Robin, to replace Marshall as the assistant manager of the KFC. So before we go on with Robin's murder case, I wanted to quickly discuss a couple of incidents back over at the Fountain Valley KFC, the location where Marshall was trained at for his position. On November 2nd, 1984, so just three days after Robin's murder, the manager of the Fountain Valley KFC location was a guy named Peter Goetz. Marshall was trained at the location a couple of months earlier in September, but Peter did not know Marshall, and he started at the store after Marshall had completed his training and placed over at his permanent position at the Torrance KFC. After the store was closed that night of November 2nd, it was approximately 11 p.m. Peter was working alone. William Marshall suddenly appeared at the drive-thru window and asked Peter what time it was, despite the fact there was a clock right there in the window that was in plain view of Marshall's vantage point. Marshall had on camouflage fatigues, a dark-colored jacket, a dark-knit cap, gloves, boots, and he was carrying a blue duffel bag. While he was outside, Marshall encountered another man named John Stumbo, one of Peter's employees. Now at the back of each KFC, there was, and there might still be, an employee-only entrance, which is supposed to remain locked from the outside at all times. But in order to gain entry in through that door, there is a buzzer that can be rang, which Marshall did. He went around to that employee entrance and rang the buzzer. Peter took a look through the peephole, and when he saw John Stumbo, he felt comfortable opening the door 
and it was at that point he noticed Marshall was out there too. John said that Marshall wanted to use the phone and asked Peter if it was okay. Now, I'm not clear if John Stumble was familiar with Marshall from his training at the store or not, but he seemed comfortable enough to want to ask for the phone for him. But Peter quickly said no and shut the door, and I'm assuming he allowed John to remain inside, I would think, I don't know. You see, Peter recognized William Marshall as having been the person who had just been fired a couple of weeks earlier from another KFC. The following day, Peter reported the incident with Marshall, and the Fountain Valley Police Department were alerted to Marshall's activities involving that KFC. As a result of the report of Marshall having attempted to gain entry into the store after hours, Detective Andrew Conahan and Officer Leroy Darley began surveilling Marshall beginning on November 6, 1984. As they followed him, they observed him purchasing some illegal narcotics, but they did not observe him using the drugs. Four days into their surveillance on November 10, 1984, at approximately 9 p.m., they saw Marshall drive into a parking lot that was near the Fountain Valley KFC, which gave him a good view of the store without him being too conspicuous. Inside were two men and one woman working to close the restaurant. Marshall again was wearing camouflage pants, a dark jacket, a knit cap, gloves, boots, and carrying a blue duffel bag. He sat in his car for a while, then he drove to a couple other locations and then came back to the Fountain Valley KFC. He tried to look into the restaurant through the window, but then he left again and then came back again. And he eventually parked near the KFC, exited his vehicle, and began walking towards the restaurant. At this point, Detective Conahan was pretty sure that Marshall was casing the Fountain Valley KFC, preparing to rob the place as soon as the employees were going to prepare to leave with the nightly deposit. But on this night, Marshall did not attempt to rob the place. But again, Detective Conahan was certain that's what Marshall was doing, casing it. Worried about the safety of the employees, the detective went ahead and arrested Marshall that night. They pulled him over at approximately 12.45 in the morning, this would be November 11th now, as he was getting off the freeway near Los Angeles. Upon a search of the vehicle, they found the duffel bag that contained an 8-inch boning knife. When the knife was examined for evidence, there was nothing usable to link it to Robin's murder. But it did appear to be consistent with the shape and size of the knife used to stab her. When Marshall was booked into the county jail, they found another knife in his pocket with a three-inch blade, along with three gloves in his pants pocket. Along with his knives, they took his clothes and his boots, and they booked all that stuff into evidence. But now at this point, the lead detective on Robin's case, Detective Lancaster, he had 48 hours to charge Marshall or to let him go. So he took what he had, which was pretty much all circumstantial, and made the best case that he could for the district attorney, hoping he could get an indictment. But he was completely shut down by the DA and the prosecutor. They were like, you have got absolutely nothing on this guy. You've got to let him go. You see, not only was there very little in the way of evidence linking Marshall to anything having to do with Robin's murder, 
He also had an alibi. When they had first brought him in for questioning following Robin's murder, but prior to his lurking around the Fountain Valley KFC, he had been relatively cooperative and pretty easygoing, easy to talk to, jovial, and seemingly wanted to help. When he was asked where he was on the evening of the 30th, he said he was home the entire night and he had proof. He told officers to go ahead and talk to his girlfriend, a woman named Yvonne Williams. So detectives had paid her a visit too, also on October 31st. She wasn't at home at the time, so they went ahead and brought Marshall down to the station for questioning while two other detectives stayed at the residence and waited for her to return home so they could speak to her. As they drove Marshall to the station, one of the detectives had noticed a band-aid on his left index finger, but he was apparently right-handed. So while he was being questioned, he said he was home by 7 p.m. the night before. He had gone to the liquor store, he went home, and then around 8, he helped Yvonne make dinner, and he said that he had cut his finger while he was slicing garlic. He had dinner with Yvonne and her children, he watched TV for a little bit, and then he went to bed. He consented to having samples of his hair taken and his fingerprints, and he also gave permission for the detectives at his house to obtain the clothing that he wore the night before from Yvonne. He also provided blood samples, and when he was asked if he had any knives, he produced a pocket knife, which was too small to have been the murder weapon. Marshall was not taken into custody on October 31st and was free to go when questioning was done. Back at Yvonne's house, the detectives did not tell her what the reason was for their visit. They asked her about Marshall's whereabouts the night of the 30th. She told officers that he was with her that night. They asked what they were doing that evening, and she said they cooked dinner, spaghetti. And to them, she seemed credible. They believed her. They took her word for it. And with that, Yvonne had provided Marshall with a rock-solid alibi. They started to think, at least at that time, at least prior to catching Marshall lurking around the Fountain Valley KFC, that maybe the lead on Marshall was going to dry up. Maybe it wasn't him. But just before they left Yvonne's house, they had one last question. They showed her the piece of foam that they had taken into evidence. And they asked her if she had any idea what that was. And she was just as stumped as investigators were. Now, as much as Yvonne's story matched Marshall's almost exactly, minute for minute, there was one small detail that conflicted with what he had told investigators in his interview. Remember he had said he'd cut his finger while chopping garlic? Yvonne denied that he helped her prepare dinner, denied that he cut any garlic, and denied that he cut his finger while doing so. So within 48 hours of taking William Marshall into custody, following his weird behavior around the Fountain Valley KFC, with the DA unwilling to file charges, investigators had no choice but to let him go. Yvonne came and picked him up from the jail, and Detective Lancaster had to go and face the Hoynes family again with more terrible news. He had to let their only suspect go. He was free, and he was on the streets again. In the meantime, the Hoynes family had said their final goodbyes to Robin, having laid her to rest following a huge funeral that had been held. 
The whole community had been devastated by her loss. And it wasn't because they had heard about this in the news and wanted to come pay their respects. It was because Robin was very well-known and well-liked and well-loved in her community. She had known so many people and had so many friends from the neighborhood and from work and from school. She really had touched so many lives. But there was one person who was noticeably absent from the memorial service. Cheryl. The one who had switched shifts with Robin the night she was killed. She had somehow gotten word that the Hoynes family were angry towards her. That if it weren't for her asking Robin to switch shifts with her so she could attend that concert with that new guy that she was dating, then this would have never happened to their daughter and that they absolutely did not want her at the funeral. Of course, Cheryl is struggling with her own sadness and her own remorse, compounded by overwhelming feelings of survivor's guilt. She knew that she should have been there at that KFC. She should have been dead, not Robin. That is a lot for any one person to bear. And life was to somehow go on for the Hoynes family, minus one. The man who they were convinced ended her, took them from her, was walking around a free man, while Robin's life was taken so violently at such a young age. Never would she reach her fullest potential in life. Never was she going to finish college. Never was she going to get married or have children of her own. She was never going to be an aunt to all of her sister's children. There was so much taken away from so many people and it was never going to be the same for them. Each of them suffered in their own unique private ways. But the one person who took it harder than all of them was their dad. He too carried around a tremendous burden of guilt. As Robin's dad, he felt as though he needed to be there for her and he wasn't. He believed it to be the biggest failure of his life. He failed as a father. He failed as a protector. And there simply was nothing he could ever do to let go of the thought that there was something that he needed to have done differently or better. And as William Marshall went on with his life too, probably never really wanting or caring to give Robin Hoynes a second thought ever again, time did carry on. Months pass, years, nearly two decades would pass. Halloween was never the same again. There was no more dressing up. There was no more passing out candies to trick-or-treaters. The Hoynes had become that family who had turned off all their lights, locked their doors, and pretended like they weren't there should anyone come a-knockin'. The day that had brought their girls so much joy and laughter every single year until the night Robin was murdered had turned into their own private day of somberness and grief. Many, many Halloweens would come and go, every one of them a muted reminder. Robin's case grew cold, and for many it grew forgotten. It wouldn't stay that way forever, though. As the years passed and Robin's case remained cold and unsolved, 
the original detective, Detective Lancaster. He would go on to retire with the heaviness of Robin's murder hanging over him. This was the one for him. Every detective is said to have one. The one that stays with you. And the Hoynes family would carry the grief as they did what they could to get back to whatever semblance of normalcy possible. Robin's sisters trudged forward. They celebrated life's milestones as the years passed. Graduations, marriages, and one by one, they began having children of their own. And the void that they had in their lives, it never relented. It never surrendered its place in their world. They would simply have to work with it and around it as best they could. The one thing that could possibly have lessened that burden, finding who did this to Robin, continued to elude them. And that hung over them like a dark cloud as well. And as for their dad, Virgil, the grief was more than he could take. For nearly 10 years, her death chipped away at him and his health until his body simply could not hang on any longer. He passed away at the age of only 61, a decade after Robin's murder. He died of emphysema, but undoubtedly his failing health was hastened by his grief and his broken heart. Robin's case sat in the bowels of the Torrance Police Department for 19 years. 19 Halloweens that brought about the aching reminders of how their lives were shattered came and went. It was 2003. That was the year the department began what many police departments across the United States started doing, especially in the wake of new science and technology that had been advancing by leaps and bounds. They started taking fresh looks at cold cases. The priority, of course, were unsolved murders. And there was a district attorney who noticed Robin's case file, and it immediately piqued his interest. You know how when we talk about some of the cases in Orange County, a name that regularly comes up is District Attorney Matt Murphy? Well, in Los Angeles County, they've got John Lewin. And if you're a regular viewer of Dateline, you may have very well seen him previously. He's also the one that's prosecuting Robert Durst. He's become known for his tenacity when it comes to cold cases. And when he took a look-see at Robin's case and he saw William Marshall as the prime suspect, he was certain that Marshall was the person responsible for stabbing Robin to death. Lewin had absolutely no doubt. Now he just needed to figure out how to prove it. He handed the case over to a detective who had a keen eye for when it came to looking at things that had been looked at hundreds of times over, yet still being able to spot something that had been overlooked. His name was Detective Jim Wallace. He had once been in college studying to be an architect. He earned his degree in design, but he chose to go into law enforcement. And when it comes to some of the visuals involved in certain cases, because he has this unique ocular inclination, he looks at cases differently. 
Through the lens of someone who sees the intricacies, the particulars, the minutiae in a way that other detectives may not. He sees the structure of the evidence and it's differently processed because of the nature of his training. So District Attorney Lewin handed the case over to him. Detective Wallace started with the pictures of the crime scene and whatever evidence that had been preserved in storage. And when he saw the piece of balm, he definitely saw that as an irregularity within the crime scene. It was a thing that simply had no place and no business being there. And he was certain that if he could figure out where that piece of balm came from, he would likely be able to put the entire story together from there. And trust me, that piece had confounded investigators for decades. Everyone who looked at it just scratched their heads. So Detective Wallace began eliminating the places that that foam could have possibly come from because in his mind, it either had to have come from Robin, from someplace in the restaurant, or from the killer. After carefully looking over all the pictures, Wallace was satisfied that this piece of foam did not come from anywhere in the restaurant, nor did it come from anything that Robin was wearing, nor was it from her purse. So that left only one possibility that this piece of foam must have come from the killer. In their files, they had a picture of William Marshall. It was kind of an odd picture, and if you Google William Marshall KFC murder and go to images, it's the top result. He looks like he's sitting on the curb handcuffed. He's wearing those camouflage pants, and they're kind of hiked up a little bit. And I believe this is a picture that was taken when he was arrested after casing the Fountain Valley KFC. So anyway, he's also wearing a pair of work boots, and when Detective Wallace noticed the boots, he had sort of that aha moment. So you know, like around the part of the boot that goes around the ankle, it's cushioned for comfort, like a soft piece of foam is sewn into the leather or whatever material the boot is made of. I don't wear work boots, but David has a pair, and I took a look, and yeah, there's a cushiony part around the top of the boot. Well, Wallace thought that this might be where this foam came from. Is it possible that for some reason, maybe wear and tear of the boot, that perhaps this piece came loose from the killer's boot and inadvertently was left behind? Well, when Marshall was arrested all those years ago, they did confiscate his clothing and his boots. So Detective Wallace went down into the evidence room and looked through the boxes to see if they still had them, and sure enough, they did. And when he took a closer look, one of the boots had the brown leather exterior sewn around that part, and it was worn down, and the foam or cushion that had once been inside was gone. His little tiny hairs on the back of his neck stood on end. If this piece of foam from the KFC matched the foam that was in the remaining intact boot, then they've got him. He was pretty convinced that this foam fell out of Marshall's boot at the KFC during the course of the murder. Wallace went to District Attorney Lewin, and he was pretty surprised how the detective was able to put two and two together like that, even stating in an interview that he could have stared at that piece of foam for years and never would have figured that out. So next, they decided to send the pieces of foam to the FBI lab in Virginia and have them analyze there 
to see if they did indeed match. They were pretty certain of the answers, so sending the pieces of foam off to the FBI was just a formality. But they certainly did not expect the results that they ultimately got when the FBI criminalists ran their tests. They were unwilling to say with any degree of certainty that the foam found next to Robin's body came from the boots taken from Marshall upon his arrest. They could not say for sure that the foam was from that boot, and the reason was because one of the pieces of foam contained thalites, and one of them didn't. And thalites is a substance used in the production of plastic that makes it more flexible and durable. Detective Wallace attempted to object to the results, explaining that perhaps the boots having been stored in a plastic bin while the foam piece was in an evidence bag may have affected the thalite's level. But they were just like, you can't explain away science. The two pieces did not share the same chemical signatures, and unless you have some plausible way to explain it, she had to exclude them as being a match. This was a devastating blow for their case. This was really the only thing that they had to possibly link Marshall to the scene of the crime. And you know, this is going back all the way to 1984, so factoring in the time that had passed, this just weakened the case that they thought they had that much more. They were going to need to figure out something else, otherwise Robin's case file would continue to collect cobwebs. The next course of action was the only thing that they could do to try and talk to Marshall again in person, to see what, if anything, he had to say about it, to see if anything he had to say changed, if he had anything to add, and to generally find out where he was in life and what's been going on with him ever since. And they tracked Marshall down, living about two hours east of Los Angeles in the mountains in the wilderness. What was he doing all the way out there? Well, for the past 15 years, William Marshall had become firefighter William Marshall. As a matter of fact, he had worked his way all the way up to fire captain with the California Department of Forestry and was responsible for his own station. He had pretty much settled into a quiet life in an area called Mountain Center, located in the San Jacinto Mountains in central Riverside County a far cry from his early days in L.A. He was well-known, a respected member of the community. He was entrusted with keeping his neighborhood safe. He had eased from the city life to life in the rugged mountains effortlessly. So if they were hoping to find a down-and-out William Marshall still running the streets doing crime, they were out of luck. The guy had gone on to live a decent, comfortable, respectable life. And I don't know if this makes this any better or makes it all that much worse because on one side, he didn't go on and kill anybody else. He eventually cleaned up his act and not only found a rewarding career, but one where he actually saves lives. But on the flip side of that, if he is indeed Robin's killer then he robbed her of her chance to have those things for herself. He cut her down as she was on the cusp of beginning her adult life. And that's just not fair. 
So what District Attorney Lewin decided was the only way that they were going to be able to prove that William Marshall was at the KFC attempting to rob and ultimately stabbing Robin to death was to prove that he wasn't somewhere else. The only place the answers to Robin's case are is in Marshall's alibi. If you recall, it was his girlfriend at the time, Yvonne Williams, who was the one that provided him with that crucial exculpatory fact. She said that he was with her the entire evening. But if you also recall, their stories matched up almost identically, except for the bit about him having cut his finger chopping garlic. That is how he explained away a cut on his hand, but Yvonne said that that never happened. So the minor detail in question that Marshall did not anticipate if he in fact prepped Yvonne for the interview so their stories matched was the question he was asked about his cut. He wasn't able to plan for an answer to that with Yvonne in advance and that might be the detail that unravels his alibi. Investigators decided to question both Marshall and Yvonne at the same time on the same day and ask them once again about that night all those years ago. Maybe their stories would diverge some more. Perhaps. So Marshall was contacted by investigators and they told him that they wanted to come out to speak to him. Two teams of investigators set out on that day. One set out to make contact with Marshall at his place in the mountains. The second set went on to Ohio to make contact with Yvonne there, where she was now living. And boy, was she surprised when they showed up on her doorstep and told her that they were reopening the case into William Marshall and the Torrance KFC murder. And when they asked her about that night, she stuck to her same story, that he was with her. So it seemed as though William Marshall's alibi was as solid as ever. In the meantime, detectives had arrived at Marshall's house, not really sure how he was going to react to seeing them. But he was pretty at ease about it and invited them in, and they sat down and started talking. The conversation kind of meandered slowly, but Marshall remained calm, really cooperative, and continued to insist he had nothing to do with Robin's murder whatsoever. Detective Wallace then switched gears and began discussing the boots and asked him why his boots had this wear and tear around the area where the foam cushion is. He explained that his shoes wore out in the same way because of the way he puts them on and takes them off. He said that he doesn't untie the laces, but rather he uses each foot to push the shoes off of his feet and does so by pushing down on the back part of the shoe, which ends up causing this wear pattern that they are seeing. He even retrieved a couple of pairs of shoes that exhibited the same wear pattern. Since they were on the subject, they went ahead and brought up that unidentified piece of foam that they found at the KFC next to Robin's dead body. They told him all those years ago when he was arrested and his boots were confiscated, one of those boots was missing the piece of foam that cushioned around the ankle. And they also told him that the foam that was still in place in the other boot matched the piece of foam found near Robin. Just about perfectly, they said. So Marshall asked them, so what you're saying is that foam is from my boot? 
Yep, that's what we're saying. Well, they asked Marshall if they could get some pictures of the shoes that he had showed them, and it was at that point Marshall refused to answer any more of their questions. So as intriguing as that entire exchange was for detectives, there really wasn't anything that brought them any closer to proving Marshall was responsible for leaving behind that piece of foam in the place where they strongly believe he ended Robin's life. So with this interview not going all that well, and the same goes for the interview with Yvonne back in Cleveland, they're starting to think that their case is stalling out again. But just as the detectives in Cleveland were about to leave Yvonne's house, she did reveal an interesting exchange that she had with Marshall when she picked him up from the police station all those years ago when he was taken into custody. When he got in the car, Marshall started crying and started asking her how he was going to get into heaven and how he wasn't going to get into heaven. He kept repeating himself as they drove. But that was as much as she was willing to give. And as much as that sounds like a man who is fearing eternal damnation, it's still not enough to be anything to run back to the DA with. With no place else to go, the detectives decided to head back to Marshall's house again, this time armed with a search warrant. They were going to get those shoes and take them in as evidence. But when they got back and executed their warrant, William Marshall had cleared out his entire closet of all his shoes. There was not a single pair of shoes inside his closet. But when investigators made their way out to the backyard, they noticed that Marshall had overlooked a pair sitting there on the porch. Those did have the same exact wear pattern as the boots they had taken from him all those years ago but just like the I'm not going to heaven thing that they got from Yvonne just like pretty much everything else in this case it still wasn't going to be enough and it again looked as though the case was going to go dormant once again unless something came up unless something changed As investigators were on the verge of shelving Robin's case again, likely this time permanently, what they did not know was Yvonne back in Cleveland was doing a lot of thinking, a lot of praying, and a lot of soul searching. That something that investigators had been hoping for finally happened. Yvonne decided it was time to let go of whatever fears that she had to stop trying to pretend like everything would just go away if she kept her eyes trained forward instead of trying to look into the past. The past was a painful place for Yvonne. She had been a battered woman, battered by the hands of William Marshall. It finally got to the point where she thought he was going to end her life. The final beating had been so severe that she had to leave. Though she continued to live in fear of him, that he would track her down and find her and finish where he had left off. When Marshall told her that he wasn't going to heaven, he also had a story to go along with that statement. 
It was a story of why he feared being denied entry into heaven. He told her, and she became the only other person on earth who knew what he had done. And having that information in Yvonne's words was as if Marshall had strapped a bomb to her, and if she slipped up, he would detonate it. Back in 1984, when all of this happened, Yvonne did seek the advice of an attorney. She had this potentially damning information about a murder, but her life had been threatened. If she were to say anything, she would be the next to die. So her attorney advised her to keep quiet, to stay out of it, to distance herself from the investigation, and to just bury this deep and walk away. And that is precisely what she did. But the visit from detectives from California, it triggered everything all over again. The secret that she had long buried into her subconscious had come roaring back to the surface and it gripped her. With fear and with guilt, she became consumed with all of this inner turmoil all over again. And you know and I know that there is really only one way to alleviate oneself of that burden, by letting it go by taking it off her own conscience and giving it to someone else to have and do with what they will to make things right. This information that she had, it was never going to relinquish its hold on Yvonne until she made the first move. So she came forward with it. The truth. Finally. Yvonne picked up the phone and called the Torrance Police Department. She had something to say about a case from 1984. She had maintained that William Marshall was with her the evening of October 30th of that year, but he wasn't. And in that moment, Yvonne was free of the secrets that she had kept. William Marshall had told her that he killed that girl and didn't get a dime from it. She went through the details of the entire evening and she knew information about the crime and the scene that nobody but the killer and police knew. She said that he told her that he went to KFC and that he wanted to rob the place to get some money and that Robin had let him in, but she had placed the money in some sort of drop box where he couldn't get to it. So he stabbed her in the back. And at that point, he tried to break open the combination lock but was unsuccessful. So angered by that, he went over to Robin where she laid on the ground and slit her throat. And all those years ago, when the first detectives came and talked to her, and when they showed her that piece of foam, she instantly knew right away that it had come from the padding in Marshall's boot. She knew that when he killed Robin, and he kneeled over that safe and tried to pry it open, that little piece of foam popped right out of his boot and landed next to her body. And she said William Marshall knew it too. He had come home and looked at all his boots and all of them had worn out backs and pieces of foam missing. Finally telling investigators what she knew was a catharsis for Yvonne. It had been a long time since she had been able to feel normal, having to carry that around for 20 years. Now I know some of you listening might get all uppity about my take on Yvonne covering for this guy all these years. I mean, some of you might think she's just getting back at an ex-boyfriend or whatever. I can't say for sure that that's the case or not, but 
she did seem to know things about the crime that she really shouldn't have known unless she was told by the killer himself. So she came off as extremely credible with her account of the crime. As for hanging on to this awful secret for much, much too long and depriving the Hoynes family from getting justice for all these years, I mean, Yvonne had the key to cracking the case. And if she had come forward after the crime, or even a year later, or even five years later, Robin's dad would have at least lived to have seen justice for his daughter. But he sadly went to his grave, never knowing who was responsible for murdering her. Yvonne could have given that to a very, very broken dad, but she didn't. And back when we did episode 102, the story of Brian Banks, the high school football player who was falsely accused of rape, and then some years later, his accuser came forward and admitted that she had lied, which led to Brian's full exoneration, but he had already served the time. I said something along the lines of, well, at least she finally came forward with the truth because she really didn't have to do that. Some of you were put off by that, that she doesn't get props for it, and I totally understand, but that's just how I felt because the truth is she could have stayed quiet and Brian Banks would continue to struggle looking for work as a registered sex offender for the rest of his life if she hadn't. But I get it. And in this case, it can be very easy for us to be angry with the way Yvonne handled this. She had this life-altering information, and she didn't tell anyone for 20 years. She allowed the Hoynes family to not only suffer the pain of losing Robin, but also suffer through the pain of her killer going unpunished. At the same time, Yvonne did live in fear of Marshall, and fear is a powerful motivator to stay quiet. Yes, much time, space, and distance had come between herself and Marshall. She could have come forward much sooner for sure. But again, she didn't have to. And honestly, it's not up to me to decide how much or how little responsibility Yvonne should take for this case having gone unsolved for so long. It's up to the Hoynes family, Robin's mother and her sisters. If they want to hang on to their anger over this and lump Yvonne's withholding critical evidence in with that, that's up to them. But dreamers, they really don't. They've forgiven Yvonne, and we'll come to that in a moment because Yvonne isn't the only person who needed some forgiveness from the Hoynes family. So in 2006, with Yvonne on their side as a crucial witness in their case, a team of detectives and police officers descended upon William Marshall's fire station in the San Jacinto Mountains of Riverside County and placed the respected fire captain under arrest for murder of all things. The man who dedicated his life to saving people and animals and homes, arrested for murder. His friends, colleagues, and neighbors could not believe when they heard the news. The community that he had served was stunned. Their fire captain, a murderer? It did not make sense. And of course, word reached the Hoynes girls, and they were so excited coupled with a moment of respite from the grief and sadness 
while it all sunk in that they were going to no longer be frozen in time with Robin. They were finally going to see the man who they knew did this to their sister go to prison for the rest of his life. By the time Marshall went to trial in 2007, he had doubled in age since 1984. The day Robin was killed, he was 23. The day his trial started for that killing, he was 46. He came into court every single day carrying his own Bible. And he was no longer the man that he was going to be portrayed as to the jury. The troubled young man who had gotten into some small-time crime in his youth and also battled a drug addiction at the time as well. All of that was gone. He was now the respectable fire captain and by all appearances absolutely incapable of such a horrific crime. This man's in the business of saving lives, not taking them, right? So with mostly a circumstantial case, District Attorney Lewin made his case for the jury. He needed the court to understand that Robin knew William Marshall. Not only did he know she would let him into the store, he knew he would have to kill her in order for her to be unable to identify him as the one who committed this robbery. And that was his motive to kill Robin, to get rid of witnesses, and to get money to fuel his drug habit. Yvonne testified. She sat across the court from William Marshall after having not seen him in 20 years. And she told the court what she knew. And the jury believed in her because they found him guilty of first-degree murder and he was sentenced to life in prison. Today, he is housed at the California Healthcare Facility in Stockton, California. He is 58 years old. And what about forgiveness? Did the Hoynes family resent Yvonne for not revealing what she knew sooner? No. If they did, they did not show it. At the court on the day she testified, one of Robin's sisters smiled at Yvonne. And that was enough to let her know that they appreciated her. And the family also sent her a thank you card after the trial. And then there was Cheryl, the one who had traded shifts and thought that the Hoynes didn't want her at Robin's funeral and blamed her for her death. That, too, simply wasn't the case. Cheryl had been mistaken. After the trial, Robin's mom reached out to Cheryl and told her that Robin was a nice person and that's why she traded shifts with her. And she told Cheryl that she thinks that she's a nice person, too, and would have done the same thing for Robin. And that she never, ever blamed her for Robin's murder. William Marshall's conviction was on February 5th, 2007. Halloween would come a few weeks later, and Robin's mom, for the first time in 23 Halloweens, told her daughters, Well, I guess it's time to get some Halloween candy. Thank you so much for listening to this 115th episode of California Dreaming. 
I would like to encourage you to come on over to our Facebook discussion group if you already haven't done so and request to join. It is there we discuss the cases that we cover. We share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories. We post about our pets, so we post funny memes, so please come over and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page, like that page, and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. I would like to take the time to wish a happy birthday to Megan A. on October 17th, Marilla S. on the 19th, Carrie M. and Donna S. on the 20th, it's Jessica and Cecilia on the 22nd, Melody H. on the 23rd, Kira C. on the 27th, and also Vanessa I. on the 27th, and Fran D. on the 28th of October. Happy birthday. California Dreamy is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to. With an eclectic roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams.